0: So, um, Nancy and I are on our travels this week for this week's episode of, as the actress said to the critic with me, the critic Sarah Crompton, and me, the actress Nancy Carroll. And we also have a special guest in the form of the playwright David Hare. So we're very pleased that you're here with us, David. Thank you. We've come to David's world in North London in a lovely room full of full of your plays. Actually, it's
1: brilliant. And films. And films. This was Mark Gertler's studio, the um, painter oh, yes. of the London Group, and um, much patronised by Bloomsbury, uh, because he was a working class boy from the East End, who Virginia Woolf and the rest of them were pretty snobbish about. Um, and here he wrestled on the up upstairs, just above us. He wrestled on the bed with Carrington, who refused to sleep with him. But that's yeah, where yeah, that's yeah. where he made his attempts is, at Carrington. I love uh, Mark Gertler, yeah, he's a fantastic painter, yeah, I li- oh, beautiful, beautiful. beautiful painter, yeah, and, and played... he painted the merry-go-round in here, no! and, yeah, 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 and because Hampstead Fair is just down the road, and so it was in this studio that he <gasps> painted the merry-go-round in 1916 or whatever it
2: was. Oh, gosh, I love that painting. Yeah. And Rufus oh, Sewell played him brilliantly,
1: yeah, it's in the tape, we should tell everybody, so yes, go and see it in Tape Britain because it's a great
0: masterpiece, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and it is one of those God, great I'm injustices kidding. that he was sort of so patronized when actually his work now, you know, you look at it and you think it stands up better in some ways than a lot of people. Well, the other they, at really Christie's artwork.
1: recently, somebody rang me and said there's a um, self portrait of Mark Gertler in his studio, which is in you know the place where you work. So maybe you should consider buying it. And um, it was sold for 150,000 pounds. So <laughs> All right, I, I, par- I passed on that one. <laughs>
0: But it's a fabulous place because it has got amazing light. I mean, yeah. it's just a wonderful place Yeah, I feel paint. a little
1: bit of guilt because I'm friends with a lot of painters and I feel guilty about having one of the really, such a beautiful studio because there aren't many really good studios in London. It's, it's very hard for painters because by and large they have to get hold of warehouses or... You know, yeah. and they don't have this wonderful light that we have here.
0: And do you always come here to write. Do you have sort of, yeah. spe- you you don't ever you have do you have patterns
1: about how you write. Nine in the morning. Oh, religious. Everyone does. There's a very good book on um, work patterns of work in which actually even Mozart, who is supposed to be this sublime genius from whom it all flows without effort, actually. He wrote every day from five o'clock in the afternoon till till eight at night. He he set aside three hours. So there isn't such a thing as a genius who is undisciplined. Yeah. Everybody I know who is a proper serious writer, or musician, or painter has discipline. It's 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 it just goes with the. Business of art forms.
2: And if you're away or doing something, do you feel at when it comes to that hour, does it then start to Horrible. feel a bit odd? Yeah, I yeah. bet.
1: I don't like days in which I don't write. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable.
2: Yeah. I
0: bet. This explains, we, we were looking this morning before coming out, about, you know, how much you've written. I mean, you, you, your sustained output is extraordinary.
1: Yeah, but you don't know how much I've thrown away.
0: <laughs> well, that means you're even
1: more prolific. <laughs>
0: if the amount that you've made is out there. Yeah, but if you
1: work every day... You know, there's a famous story about Graham Greene going to see have lunch with Terence Rattigan. And um, Graham Greene goes in and Terence Rattigan says, just let me finish this page. And he finishes the page... And Graham Greene says to him, hmm, that's a page of dialogue, is it? And he says, yes. And um, Greene said, how many of those do you have to do? And um, Rattigan said, well, you've got to do about 80 of these and then you've got to play. And um, Graham Greene said, I think I might write a play. Because, <laughs> <I might." laughs> of course, theoretically, it looks terribly easy. It yeah. looks yes. very short. Yeah. Yes, you know, yes. compared with a novel where you're building a word mountain, yeah. you know, a play, nowadays, they're shorter and shorter. Yeah. But you know, a, a regular play, a kind of play I like, where you actually stay for the evening. Uh, they're twenty thousand words, which is nothing. To yeah, a, yeah. It's nothing to a novelist.
0: Yeah.
2: Do you and, always? Sorry. Sorry. I was going to say, do you always start at the beginning? Oh yeah. Okay, that's where interesting. Else? In the middle, or I wonder sometimes if because no, I have,
1: sometimes there'll be a structural idea. But what often happens um, when you have a structural idea, or you write a line of dialogue, which you Think is going to be essential to the project, it falls away, and because it's scaffolding, and right. the idea itself takes over. I mean, there's a very interesting one on Straight Line Crazy, which, in my view, which is not everybody's view. Robert Moses was a man who, his vision, as a, his idealistic vision when he was young, he became trapped in that vision, yeah, and he couldn't escape it, and he couldn't modify it, and he became rigid. So I'd always imagined the line, and it was there in the text. Um, Is there anything worse than being trapped in a dream, was the line. And there was a point towards the end of rehearsals where Nick Heitner, expecting resistance turned to me and said, I wonder if we should cut that line. Is there anything worse than being trapped in a dream? And I said, no, it's, I'm ready to cut it because it's actually fallen away. Yeah. It's the underlying idea of the play. Yeah, the yeah. audience can understand that that's the idea of the play. It doesn't need saying. So what you start with sometimes just disappears because it's subsumed into the material itself.
2: Right. Yes,
0: yes, yes. We're talking, in fact, as you're in rehearsals for um, Straight Line Crazy, which is your most recent play, going to um, America to open at the Shed, starring Ray Fiennes, and about Robert Moses, who was the architect who essentially transformed New York, changed it into the city we see today opened it up in terms of its roads and so on Have you, when we saw it here for me it was fabulous seeing it partly at the bridge because it was it was like an exploration it was somebody I didn't really know anything about and the as plays often do sent me off on a kind of journey of you know finding out about this man and about his time I mean that's one thing I, I kind of love about theatre I think it's kind of a great tool for the self-educator um, but but for New York audiences, do know who Robert Moses is? They do know that he was a controversial figure. Have you have you looked at it again in the light of it going to New York? Have you do you make not at all. Not at all.
1: I, I mean, they, I, you're you're totally right. Everyone will come with a view. Yeah. You know, he's loathed, um, particularly you know, in ethnic minority communities for everything he did to move people out to move the poor out of the way of his roads and to move them out of um, central Manhattan and away to the suburbs. And so he's despised and hated for that. Other people, you know, think that he is the great modern creator of the city they live in and they feel gratitude to him. And they certainly feel gratitude for the expressway system, you know, which is his. And so... You know, I I, 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 there's nothing I can do. Everybody's yeah. going to just receive it differently. It's going to be totally different. But I shouldn't. I don't think about, you know, the level of the of the audience's knowledge. That's not any my concern in the slightest.
0: Right. So you'd never. You would. Ne- you just always start off with what you want to write about.
1: I don't think about the audience. Right. That's interesting. They don't. I mean, because if you've any luck at all with a play, it's going to be performed all over the world. Um, So, you know, how can I worry about what the reception is going to be in Japan? I can't, Mm -hmm. you know. And so a play, you know, an interesting example, a play like Plenty, when Plenty was performed in Japan... Then the producers told me that all the men, nearly all the men in the audience, left at the end of the first half because they objected. This is 1980s to the principle that a play be about a woman, that the woman be the central character, and they just went, "Well, we're not going to stay at a play about a woman. That's a complete waste of time," you know. Whereas the women stay and weep because there is finally, not because of the play itself, but because there is finally a play about a woman. So you're going into, with a bit of luck, if you write a play that has any international uh, profile at all, you're going into all sorts of different cultures with plays, and they're going to be received completely differently according to the mood in the audience. They always said, you know, the most revolutionary thing you could do in the Soviet Union was perform Hamlet, because Hamlet had a meaning, regicide. um, It had a meaning to Soviet dissidents that it doesn't have to the good citizens of Stratford-on-Avon. Yeah, yeah, that's true.
0: So what do you think about when you're starting a play? What is your starting point? What do I think about? Yeah.
1: Usually a visual image. I want the audience to be... I want them to be enticed by what they see when they walk into the theatre, so that plenty begins with high windows, um, a naked man, a woman sitting on... um, boxes smoking a cigarette uh smoking a roll-up actually rolling up which Kate Nelligan always said was the cruelest thing ever done to an actor was to make them do a roll-up <laughs> in the first 30, se- 30 seconds of a play yeah you know because your hands are sh- shaking yes. you know, to, to be able to roll, do a roll-up in the first 30 seconds but when I, and someone comes in with a Chinese takeaway well the minute I see that yes. I, I want to see that play and I think anticipation is the most um, overlooked quality in the theatre. I think mm-hmm. that anticipation, it, there's always been a sort of... I've always tried to create anticipation. Yes. And I've noticed there's a, there are certain writers who have it. There's a writer called Joe Pennell. I don't know if you've ever seen his work. Yeah. But, but I remember going to see a play of his, and it wasn't Blue Orange. It was another one at the court. And the audience were incredibly excited, and it hadn't even begun yeah. And I thought, this is a fantastic quality in a writer to yeah, be able yeah. to excite the audience just at the idea of what they're going to see mm, yes. rather than what they actually see. And there's a sort of tingle of anticipation. And when I've been to my plays, I'm Not Running was an example of a play where there was no anticipation. I walked in and I could just tell that the audience was not excited before it began. Yeah, and then they yeah. heard nothing about it. I mean, in a preview, there was no anticipation. And you sort of go, well, how do they know it's psychic? they sort of know that it isn't exciting yeah. well, it's not going to be exciting to them, maybe yes. exciting to me, not exciting to them.
2: there's an interesting science isn't there, in terms of the process of revelation or how yeah. how how quickly you reveal things and how much information an audience or a reader needs. To keep them going, enough sort of fodder to keep them interested, and and that's
1: all we do. That's that's my entire profession is how to disclose information without the audience realizing that that's what I'm doing. Yeah, there's a wonderful quote by Valerie Paul Valerie who said um, that the purpose of art was to convey the sensation without the labor of its conveyance, and that you that's exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to get a whole lot of information across without the audience realising. It's all smuggled in. Yes. And they think they're being entertained, but in fact they're being told a lot, but they don't realise they're being told Mm. a lot. Yes. Because it's boring once they start.
2: But it's also, I think, true of performance, that, you know, as an actor or a company or director... You know what the moment is at the end, and yeah. it's whether or not you can literally hold the breath of yeah. the arc until the last moment.
1: That's right. And
2: how many actors are, are prepared to wait, keep, an, keep the audience on the edge of their seat and not go full-blown description, yeah. you know, before the end, because they want the reaction, but actually it's just so perfect if you can hold it to the last.
1: Yeah. I've, I just read a bit about Ellen Terry, and Ellen Terry was furious at constantly being described as a natural actress. They described her all the time as a right. natural actress. And she had a particular technique, and it was a technique, of appearing to float across the stage. In other words, she could get from one side of the stage to the other without, you know, seeming for there to be any movement. In fact, and everyone said, oh, she's so natural, she goes across the stage like that. And I can remember the young Judy Dench doing the same thing, that Judy Dench would go across the stage like that. And you'd think, how did she get across the stage? And Ellen Terry actually had perfected a technique, which was to land on the balls of her feet and to project herself forward. And she used to say, it drives me nuts when people say this, (laughs) I'm a great natural actress. Actually, I'm doing something technically incredibly difficult that very, very few people can do. And I've worked on the technique, so please stop calling me natural.
2: Yeah. But I suppose that's it. You want to seem effortless. I'm yeah.
1: always, that's, I always. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah. exactly what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. As but just like... to finish about anticipation, yeah. Yeah. the most interesting story is George Lucas, who said that when he did Star Wars, he'd shown it to a few people. He sh- he'd shown it to Steven Spielberg, and Steven Spielberg has said, "Yes, it's very good, George. Very nice. You know, enjoyed it thoroughly." And showed it to a hundred <laughs> people, and then he on the Thursday morning or Friday morning, whatever, he walks to Grauman's Chinese Theatre. And there's a queue, you know, miles round the block. Mm. And he says, how did they know? How did they know, yeah, these yeah. people? How did they know that Star Wars doesn't sound anything special? Yeah. How did they know it was about to become the biggest grossing film of all time? Yeah. But they did. They knew by some process. And I think it's probably the idea of a play. In other words, I think Joe Pennell has got the gift that The idea of his plays sounds interesting. Yes. And people get excited about the idea. And that's something that's very overlooked in the theatre. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. And that actually gets you a long way if people have that attitude, you know.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting because I, I mean, I always have a sort of certain childlike approach to the theatre that I'm always quite excited. I mean, I, I mean, my family will say that that's slightly untrue, that there's quite a lot of moaning before I set off for a wet night in, <laughs> in sort of East London, actually, which I've always got, oh, I don't want to go to East London. But then when I, I do always have that sense of sitting down and you're right, it is quite often the idea of just, yeah. you so- know, kind of what, what might happen next. Um, but is there? Really, if you haven't got that sense, is there anything you as a playwright can do about it? Or is no. it
1: just, it's just... It is just... My, my old agent, Peggy Ramsey, used to say, an idea has a destiny. And she meant by that both that the job of the playwright was to work out what the destiny of the idea was, which I think is true, but she also meant that certain ideas are going to appeal Right. And certain ideas are not going to appeal. Yeah. And you can spend your whole life trying to flog them, um, but they are never going to appeal. And there's certain plays I've written which are never going to appeal, in spite of them seeming to me much more fascinating than some of the plays that do appeal. But that I can't do anything about. People so which just,
0: ones would those be? I think which... My
1: Zinc Bed, I think, is a really okay. fascinating play. And My Zinc Bed, um, that no, nobody who listens to this podcast will have heard of it, But it was a play that, and by the way, you know, was the fastest selling play in the history of the Royal Court. It just sold out, bang, because it had Tom Wilkinson and Julia Ormond in it, basically. And so, again, anticipation, oh, Tom Wilkinson and Julia Ormond are going to be in it, so it's sold out, you know. Um, But it's basically about the problem of alcoholism. Why has alcoholism become such a huge thing and why has addiction become such a huge thing to which I thought I had a really interesting answer but I can see in the blankness of the audience and various people have revived it and you know tried to saying this is a great play why does nobody recognize it's a great play but they just don't you you put across your idea about addiction and they're totally uninterested and there's nothing you can do about it and I just have to accept that my fascinating theory about addiction is of absolutely no What was your theory? I felt that it's a substitute for belief. I think that it's, you know, in other words, people used to believe and they used to have faith and that instead, you know, we pleasure ourselves not with ideas or with convictions or with faith, Um, but the basic, you know, behaviour of a faithless society of people who don't believe in anything is to become addicted to drink or drugs, you know? And um, it's not a bad theory, um, but phew, nobody cares. <laughs> the other thing
0: that that touches on there is that the, that it is often actors who, who kind of, that's the other reason, that's the other anticipation that yes. you buy a ticket. Was there a moment with theatre for you where you felt completely sort of switched on by theatre, feeling that this was going to be your life? Was Was there an... Well, we all
1: act- cite Paul Schofield. I don't know anyone... I don't know anyone of my generation, meaning people who are now in their 70s, who don't cite Paul Schofield as King Lear. You just do, because it's sort of... It, 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 in my mind, and of course, you're you know, you're know, misled by youth, and maybe the things you see in your youth affect you much more profoundly. But there's nothing... I can remember bits of Schofield's performance. I can remember scenes, I can remember intonations. You know, I only saw it once, but yeah. I can remember exactly how he said certain lines and things. Yeah. And he just, he etched it in, on your brain in a way that makes the play almost impossible to do. I directed a production and I kept going, oh my God. Who was your Lear? Who did that, you know. What?
2: Who was your Lear?
1: Anthony Hopkins. Oh God. And um,
2: With Judi Dench at the National? No, no, it wasn't
1: with Judi Dench. No, it was with oh. Anna Massey. Anna oh Marcy, my lord and, um, all my favorite actors were in it Bill Nye was in it needless to say and Roshan Seth who I adored and um oh. it was full of sort of my crowd yeah um and but you could not forget Paul Schofield it just he was great he was just it was the greatest thing I ever saw and I I, I know Christopher Hampton felt exactly how Brenton we all just and, we, you know, we just all independently saw that production and mm. thought, oh, well, if that's what theatre can be like. And Brooks' production as well, yeah. which was yeah. absolutely fantastic.
0: Yeah. Did you ever see Paul Schofield? Did you ever see him? No. I only saw him once. I saw him on film. Oh, no, actually, I saw him twice. I saw him as Volponi, or in Volponi. Yeah. And I saw him in... Uh, John Gabriel Bultman, Yeah. And that's just been revived at the bridge. And all the time I was watching it, yeah. these little echoes of Schofield kept coming into my head. Not that, you know, I wasn't enjoying what was in front of me, but it is like sometimes with dancers, it's like a ghost figure that kind of comes over and reminds yeah. you of something you've seen of a intonation or a bend of the arm. And I, it is interesting with Schofield that he... He seems to have had that capacity. Yeah,
1: He was very, very clear about what he wanted to do, the, the parts he wanted to play, the parts he felt he could play and the parts he couldn't play. And he also was very, very clear about how to play them. And I was lucky enough at the age of 23 to adapt a Pirandello play that he was in. And I was, you know, I was 23 and I was in a rehearsal room with Paul Schofield and Joan Plowright <sighs> wow. and with Laurence Olivier producing. And, you know, I was just completely in awe Olivier, I couldn't deal with at all. You know, I just couldn't speak to him because I was, you know, just couldn't. Joan was delightful. Yeah. But Paul was incredibly, underneath it, he's very, very, he was very, very charming, very sweet, never lost his temper, very kind. But steel about what he actually wanted to do and the way he was going to play the part. Yes, yes. You really couldn't budge him he just he he had it in his mind about how he was going to do it mm, yeah. and uh he, he very very difficult to direct because he could do anything which are always the most difficult actors to direct yes. the ones who can judy dench is very hard to direct because judy dench can do anything yeah and at, you know a director faced with a choice judy will say well, well would it be better if i did this does it brilliantly yeah. or would it be better if I do that yeah, does yeah, it brilliantly yeah. and director goes oh, you know uh, yeah. you really have to be strong and Schofield was the most difficult actor to direct not in temperament but in ability because yeah, there was nothing yeah. he couldn't do yeah
2: yeah, yeah. I realized that the, I, the, why I thought it was Anthony Hopkins and Judy Dent is because there's that big photograph of them together in the in the national they did Anthony yeah. and Cleopatra Right, okay, that's why it's confusing. They did, and, uh, same
1: Tony same Hopkins, same yeah. amazingly, this is, you know, he'd just done 100, I think he did 180 Pravdas wow. in which there was not, in the Olivier Theatre, in which there was not a single empty seat. And then he did 100 Lears and 100 Antony's. Wow. And in, there was not an empty seat for any of those. And yeah. it's it's just, it's sort of unimaginable. It's yeah. a sort of... Uh, Theatre event on a scale that I don't think there's been anything like that since that two and a half years when, when Tony was at the National. Yeah. I mean, he never had an empty seat.
2: Yeah. And did he stop doing stage work or was after the yeah. Scottish play? I've
1: killed the careers of uh, <laughs> Anthony, Anthony Hopkins, Tom Wilkinson has never done a play since my sink bed. Bill Nye refuses to do Shakespeare after his experience of playing Edgar in my production of King Lear. Uh, I I think I've robbed the stage of some of the greatest greatest actors of our time. Uh,
2: I wonder what maybe also maybe it's just a sort of an experience that fills your body in a way that you think I don't know if this is repeatable. I'll Go somewhere else now. Maybe that. It's I was very
1: a- affected very early on. I worked with Stephen Moore. Do you know Stephen Moore? Uh, Stephen yeah. Moore was a, um, an actor who had been the leading man at Bristol Old Vic, and he had one day punched a hole in the set. He just turned and put his fist through the set. And when I said to him, "Why do you not play leading roles anymore?" he said, "The emotional." expense of playing leading roles is too much for me. I can't, I've decided to play smaller parts. So he played in plenty in a smaller part, you know, as the, as yeah, the yeah. man. And it, when when I was with Anthony Hopkins, the, the turbulence of playing these great leading roles was, it was, you know, Schofield had a thing, which is he'd get the train, he'd go home, read a book on the way home, you know, go back to his wife. Yeah. He'd spend every summer walking on mull. Yeah. You know, to to just have a way of dealing with the fact that he was playing the greatest parts in the repertory. Yeah. And yeah. his way of dealing with it was to be very, very calm. Yeah. Know?
2: I mean, there are parts traditionally that slightly play with your reality boundaries. Yeah.
1: Well, Leah is it.
2: Yeah. Leontes, again, you yeah. go a bit. And it's in. We have a, a, a fantastic acupuncturist friend who helps Joe and I, and he helps loads of actors and he said but you if you're in the middle of a play i don't want to heal you too much you need a little bit of something that's not quite right just to help you go on stage every night yeah so he doesn't want any he doesn't leave you completely calm by yeah. design which i think is rather brilliant and intuitive of of him yeah um you know but traditionally uh yeah I mean, we've have friends you just you you sort of go to a place where you know not because you you don't have the sort of brain muscle to know where those realities are it's just that your your muscles have emotional tissue and the repetition of the work plays havoc with your with your insides I think and so you and then through exhaustion you're not quite sure how to stop it taking over it's it's an odd thing
0: completely have you ever had it have you ever felt it
2: I definitely I definitely have moments where uh i it depends on the nature of the part. If you're playing a part which you're wholly loved, you just feel marvellous all the time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you might loved as a as a character. Yeah, yeah. You
2: go on stage and oh, she's great, and it's all marvellous, and you come off stage. Oh my God,
1: I still feel marvellous and amazing. I take that
2: home, and I'm still marvellous. But then if you get if you're playing a part that's psychologically yeah. quite dark or exhausting, yeah. you just walk around with a cloud over your head. I I did um. Hester and Deep Blue Sea, yeah. and, and I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. But I did spend the rest of the day feeling completely um, knackered, just completely yeah. knackered. And I, and I, I think particularly after you've had kids, you're quite economic about how much of your brain is actually available to the work because your kids need the other part. And so I've always felt, I think I can do that. I think I can, I can draw those lines in the sand quite clearly, but. Hester was the first time I thought, God, no, this is this is taking me. But it wasn't, I didn't feel dark psychologically, I just felt drained,
0: Yeah, like I
2: had yeah. nothing else. I know.
1: think there are plays, you know, I adapted Galileo, the Brecht play, for um, the Almeida, and yeah. then we did Mother Courage for The National, in rapid succession with Jonathan Kent directing both, Richard Griffiths as Galileo and then Diana Rigg as... Um, mother courage and galileo and i've talked to other people is always a happy play the yeah. company is always happy they love the play they love doing it they always enjoy it mother courage is always unhappy yeah. i've yeah, yeah. never heard of a happy production of mother courage because mother courage is so bloody depressing yeah. you know yeah, the only yeah. thing that happens is all her children get killed yeah. yeah and then you know she goes on ignoring the war and becoming more and more of a monster yeah. As the, and and it's just a very very depressing story to tell. Yeah, and there's something about it that makes everybody miserable while yeah. they're working on it. Yeah, yeah. And um, I wouldn't like to do Mother Courage again, whereas I'd love to do Galileo again. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's just. It's just the beat of the play is so depressing. Yeah,
2: it's. A, I mean, it's a shock. I, I did uh, Wojciech at the Old Vic with John Boyega, and he was brilliant. But he had never taken anything on like that before,
1: and he. Who was it, John? Who? John Boyega oh, from yeah. Star Wars. Become yeah, yeah, yeah. come full circle. Yeah.
2: Um, the uh, the exhaustion. Yeah. And the 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 sort of psychological fragility that he felt going mad every night. Yeah was not anything that he knew what to do with. He, he was like, I can't believe you guys do Tony this all Hopkins, the time. I think Tony Hopkins,
1: after he'd played Anthony Lear and Lambert LaRue in Pravda, just felt, I have done stage. I've yeah. done it now. Yeah, I yeah. don't ever need to do stage again. And I'd like to be happier. Yeah. He yeah. basically felt, I'd like to be happier. I'm going to go to Hollywood and I'm going to have a really nice life. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, you yeah. Know, he said that very significant thing, which is so true of a lot of actors. He said, I don't like film sets, as much as I like driving between film sets,
2: yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> brilliant. I love that comment. Yeah, it's it just he's happiest when he's going to work or leaving work. Yeah. you know, uh, but the work itself not <laughs> so crazy. So.
0: You you wrote that lovely piece for um, Prospect, David, about the kind of great heroic uh, generation of actors that yeah. you know we we uh, you grew up watching, and 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 I think. I was reading that and I was thinking there are those actors still now who write, kind of really do make a commitment to doing stage. People like um, Anne-Marie Duff and James McArdle and people like that. James McAvoy has come back, you know, to do an absolutely brilliant Serrano. But I wonder whether part of the reason that we, that, that, that there seem to be slightly fewer is that the choices, in fact, earlier in their career are so much... Bigger, so that they can say, you know, used to. If you look at Burton, he chose to go to Hollywood, Richard Burton, because he wanted to make money. Now you can make money in TV and Marvel and so all the rest of it, and do good work, and maybe the stage starts to look kind of quite, you know, lots less money, lots. Lots more trauma. I mean, maybe he starts to look a less kind of attractive prospect at some levels. I mean, you look at people But don't that- you
1: think it's also that heroic acting is out of fashion and that it is that there are not heroic... You know, the, the writers of the previous generation, John Osborne, obviously, you know, where you have very great performances by Nicole Williamson and Paul Schofield and all these people in, in John's work... But they are basically asserting the individual. they're about everything is becoming conformist, society is becoming very dull it's all we're all turning into consumers and they're all about there's a person in here, I'm screaming to get out and I'm a human being yeah well actors love playing those parts you know and that that creates a certain kind of heroic actor of which Rafe finds is you know the remaining example yeah. Rafe. Rafe is still that kind of actor, the actor in the, in the heroic tradition. But, you know, most plays you go to see that are written nowadays are ensemble plays or plays that, you know, they don't, they don't feature that. Obviously, um, Jerusalem is an exception to that, but it's a particular kind of exception. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not a heroic age in the way, way characters are written. Right. And so to, to play heroic, people go to television and film.
0: Because they get that kind because of concentration that on. From, That's really interesting. Know. I hadn't thought of that. Although I have to say,
2: you, I have been in in companies where the director makes everybody feel like they are the hero. Right. And 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 so you, it is possible to have, you know, a, a play with ten characters or, or playing the lead in their own head. Yeah.
1: The best the best play I ever directed that does that is Heartbreak House, and Heartbreak House has ten characters in it. Yeah. And apart from the burglar. The nine other characters believe they are the principal character. Yeah. And I slowly realised, talking to all of them, and I thought what a brilliant piece of writing it is that Shot and Hamani, Hashabai and all these people believe they've got the best part. Yes, yes. And it is an incredible achievement to write a play in which... But, you know, there again, you can't do Heartbreak House without heroic actors. You need heroic actors to do Heartbreak House. You need heroic actors to do Man and Superman. You need heroic actors to do Deep Blue Sea, for goodness sake. Yeah. Um but the you know by heroic I mean dedicated to celebrating the individual.
2: Yeah. I thought Jack Absolute had a bit of that. I didn't see that. Yeah, you but, didn't you see did it. That, yeah. but it was again I think the Olivier stage invites that because it has it you you need to Fill yourself. Yeah, and the audience and, respond to it. Yeah, of course they do. And but everybody and the way that the Oliver Chris and Richard Bean wrote it was that it it had taken the sort of rivals model and. But put it in that sort of uh, vaudeville front-footed ilk that, that you know every character introduced themselves and and so it was all it had a tongue-in-cheek quality that suited the the invention you know the the, 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 the sort of resetting it into the Second World War and uh, but I uh, it it really felt like every character that came on became the lead the minute they came on and they said, I'm this person and I'm fantastic. And you're going to, so that you were following. It did, it had an element of that. I I think it is, it is possible, I suppose, as well.
1: We always felt with the Olivier that you had to break the fourth wall, that you could not achieve anything. Chekhov in the Olivier is dire. Right. I mean, it's very very difficult and mercifully the plays when we did Young Trek off the great advantage is it has direct address and yeah. that way you yeah. can work but if you go in and try and create just atmosphere in the Olivier you're absolutely doomed in that yeah, enormous yeah. space so the worst plays you can possibly do in there are Cherry Orchard and Three Sisters, you know, yeah, and they, they, uh, and as soon as you break the wall and start talking to the audience, it's a Greek theatre, for goodness sake. And mm-hmm. if you know, Greek theatre depends on direct address, yeah. And um, the minute you do that, that theatre begins to begins to work. Right. But it doesn't work if you try and do just a naturalistic uh, representation in that. Yeah. You
0: have since the very start of 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 your career, you you've you had you directed as well as wrote. What do you think? Directing brought your writing, and vice versa. Or did you always see them as sort of separate?
1: No, I started cast. as a director. Yeah, and then I felt that other directors, although they were wonderful, and I worked, you know, early on with Max Stafford Clark and Michael Blakemore and Richard Eyre, and you know, they were the they directed my first plays. But I felt the tendency of directors, however good they were, with a new writer, was to make them sound like other. Right, You know, just as a musician will say, oh, I'll play this bit like Puccini, you know. I I could see directors going, yeah, so this is a bit like Osborne, is it? Or this is a bit like, you know, so so. this is sort of O'Neill, is it? And so I felt I alone can make my voice completely distinctive so that, you know, at whatever cost in quality, it will sound like me and it'll sound like nobody else. So Teeth and Smiles was the first play... That I directed of mine, and that was a play about a rock and roll band with Helen Mirren. And that was just so exciting because I felt it was my voice right. and that I, you know, it had a fantastic cast. It had Tony Sher in his first London appearance, wow. you know. And it had Hugh Fraser and Mick Ford and um, Jack Shepard and Cherry Lungi and, I mean, it just unbelievable, Dave King, unbelievable wow. cast. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you couldn't go wrong with these people. And it, it, it uh, you know, I felt, well, I've got my... Vo- then, years later, I felt everyone knows what a David Hare play sounds like right. right now and looks like. I don't need to, I don't need to assert anymore this is, this is what a David Hare play is. But um, so once I once it was that, I was very happy for other people to take over. But and then
0: carry on directing other people's plays. Not much. It? no, Not much. No, no,
1: not. I gave up. I had two flops and really that I fell off the horse and didn't want to climb back on again. I had two flops where I felt that they were entirely my fault right. and that I directed them very badly. Um, I directed a, a musical in New York, which I felt, had been so wonderful in workshop and which I managed to destroy on stage. And then The Secret Rapture, which Howard Davis had directed in uh, London, I then totally fucked up on Broadway. And um, I just felt, well, I don't need to put myself through this anymore. Um, And I'm not enjoying it. And I lost my nerve. Right, yeah. And because I was not a professional director, I didn't need to do it anymore. So since then, I've only done it for friends, really. I mean, Joan Didion wanted me to do Year of Magical Thinking with Vanessa. And so I did that. But I, do, I don't really think of myself as a stage director anymore.
0: Right, right.
2: When you acted, did you, did you, you had the thing that you wrote about in Acting Up. Did that change the way you wrote as well? Acting what? When, your book, Acting Up. Yeah, did I didn't about...
1: really act. I performed. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Actually, what do you
1: know? You act. Tomato, perform. tomato. <laughs> I performed. <laughs>
2: But did that change the way that you wrote, or not really?
1: Oh, yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah, I'd already worked out that it was not a good thing to have actors sitting in the dressing room feeling they'd wasted their evening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In the early plays I wrote, they'd have a character called barman, you know, and he'd serve drinks, and then he'd go back to the dressing room for the Uh rest of the evening. Yeah. And I'd already worked out that plays were better when everybody was invested in them. Yeah. So, But to see it the other way round was absolutely... I mean, eye-opening.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. in
1: particular, just in the smallest thing, right? The arrangement of objects. You know, previously when actors had said to me, I don't want that glass of water there, I want it six inches to the right, yeah? I would go very tolerantly, you know, being a very nice director. I'd say, oh, yes, you know, so-and-so would like that glass of water six inches to the left going.
0: Well, you I know, guess. okay. Ways. Yeah. Yeah. Right. okay.
1: Diva. But of course then when i was diva exactly yeah because when i was acting myself i kind of go oh i thought that rail was going to be there but yeah it's yeah there. oh oh my oh i don't feel very comfortable and yeah. now i understand how important yes. all that stuff it's vital that stuff isn't it yeah
2: well i suppose it's i mean yeah it can be it security on security yeah absolutely is oh, this, but we rehearsed with the table. door should... Is this what the handle's going to be like because yeah. I can't turn this no, door No, that's handle. right
1: The table was much higher in rehearsal Yes, oh, yes And now it's down. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm not comfortable Yes, you, know. you
2: do have to check yourself though because it com- it's fear You know, and if you if you have those moments you're like, well, I can't possibly work with this cushion You know, <laughs> that, that, um, you have to go Come on Put your big girl pants on. <laughs> it's a cushion.
1: Well, I now take those moments terribly <laughs> <laughs> seriously. I, <don't> <laughs> I, I go, you know, Mr. So-and-so is not happy with his cushion.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it is hilarious, but we've <laughs> all, you know. Yes. It's a bit like cross-lighting, for example. Yeah. You know, lots oh, of lighting designers it. love cross-lighting. Tell me about it. But you get on stage, you say, t- well, I can't see yeah, the person yeah. I'm talking to. I know. Yeah. What's the important thing, Nancy? You yeah. know he's there and he will answer. <laughs> you know, he, she. Yeah. But it is, I mean, it is interesting. And, and it's a bit like what you were saying about a line in a play. It, it's scaffolding you know, eventually, it won't matter where the glass is.
1: Yes, but But there is a
2: point at which knowing exactly that the glass will be there, it does make a difference. But also,
1: you know, I had so often as a director lectured actors saying it doesn't matter the audience's reaction line by line, you know, yeah, if you don't get a laugh, it doesn't mean anything. It's just that there will be people in a quiet audience who will suddenly rise to their feet at the end, having had the greatest evening of their life. And you all have been going what a terrible audience you've been all evening you know in fact they go home and somebody from that audience it's the greatest night of their life and etc of course the minute I started acting oh I haven't got my laugh tonight (laughs) (laughs) oh, they're not laughing at that line you know and Stephen Daldry was having to give me the lecture yes I had given to so many actors Uh, yeah you know courage and don't Worry, it doesn't matter if you miss the last and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it just it, 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 it learning all that stuff for yourself is really something, you know. Yes yeah.
2: it is interesting.
0: Do you think? Well, I just was thinking because um, to move on, just another step in this, the conversation, because this is a podcast, of course, about criticism as well as about acting. And um, I wondered how much. Oh, so there's a cloud uh, passed uh, over uh, my beautiful. <laughs> oh no! <yes.
1: laughs> passed over the roof suddenly. <laughs>
0: So i won I thought that I thought I'd bring a really bad yeah bring into it down this. In. yeah yeah sure. um, and I wondered if you're well what you've felt about critics through your writing um career and Beep. whether it's changed a bit I found that wonderful peggy ramsey um uh, comment that she yep. made about um you have to face the firing squad if you want to face the world yep. which i i I hadn't you know that's i think you quote that. Yeah, there's a great letter she yeah, wrote me yeah. after
1: a particular play of mine had been extremely badly received. And uh, she basically, you know, uh, said, well, you know, if you say new things. Uh, and so, you know, my attitude to critics has been that the great plays are always traduced, They're never discovered. Right. So that, in other words, Waiting for Godot, you know, there was a run of mid-century plays which were by and large badly received, Look Back in Anger was by, by and large, Waiting for Godot was by and large badly received, Saved was extremely badly received, and um, the birthday party, of course, closed in five yeah, days. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, to me it's... And I worked at the Royal Court Theatre where it was always a badge of honour that, you know, if you wrote anything remotely interesting or new, you would be attacked. Yeah, And I don't think it's changed much. I think it's still true. So I believe that, and I loathe this practice of young writers who now put four-star reviews on their website. They have a website, and they say, Michael Billington loved my play, and it's given it four stars. And I say to them, and when he gives you two stars for the next play, are you going to put that on your website? Yeah. You know? In other words, once you lend authority to critics and say, I accept your judgment... Yeah. It's a hell of a path to go down. Do you
0: ever feel you accept their judgment, hmm? though? Do you ever feel, or do you just just because you write brilliantly about criticism at, at many levels? But do you, how do you sort of yeah?
1: You mean cope have I ever it? read something where yeah where you thought yeah I have read things where when I was young, Irving Wardle wrote that I seemed to use characters for my own convenience and manipulated them around the stage rather than allowed them to be real people. And when I read that, I thought, "Yeah, probably," and yeah. I need to do something about that. I thought I thought it was a fair charge at that point. Yeah. I don't think it's a fair charge now, but I did think I did think that that's fair enough.
0: Yeah. And do you I still st- read reviews? Do you read reviews? No. of your place, you but don't. they
1: come through the air. Yeah. They come through the air. There's a Judi Dench saying that she comes in every everything she does. She comes in on the second night, and she said. She always says, "I haven't read them, but I hear they're very good." <laughs> <laughs> and she just announces it to kill the subject, yeah, so that everybody doesn't become obsessed, you know. We had a very interesting experience with "I'm Not Running," which was really that "I'm Not Running" was a play. When the publicity department tried to find a quote, they couldn't find a quote for the poster. They couldn't find a single good word that had been said about it that they could that they could actually quote, right? You see? And that's quite, you know... And I said, well, are there any stars? They said, not many, no, there aren't any, really.
0: He
2: added them together. you
1: add them together. But I'm Not Running played to 50,000 people and pe- played to something like nearly 80% wow. in the Littleton, which is a 900-seat theatre. Yeah. And it was perfectly clear the audience adored it. Yeah. And the audience really was did. standing every night by the end of the run. And so it's very... You you just have to forget about it. Yeah I mean it did send me into a spiral and I was very, very depressed and it hurt me a lot and I was very, very, very unhappy for a long time. Yeah. But, you know, on the other hand, the actors were perfectly happy because they were playing to these great audiences.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always feel as a critic, I suppose my I do think one of my great fears is that I would miss the great play. I mean you know that because well, you I, have, Sarah. I, I you know, <laughs> Often. often yeah, But I, I do think you I know, mean, I If, if House, I was at I the thought, birthday I party thought, thought, Birthday party in particular I often think If I was at the birthday would party Would I have actually just said It wasn't it didn't I thought House
1: of Shades this year was an exceptional Yes, when I liked play. that. I thought yes. it was an exceptionally oh, brilliant phew, play. Beth I Seale got that one. The old <laughs> yeah. made <it>. what? Did <laughs> I you get that one right? Yes. Oh, well done. But <laughs> certainly the critics I read got nowhere near it. No. Nowhere near it. Oh, that's let that, You know, <laughs> where, again, whether you like it or not, it's a fantastically original play by a really important young writer. And, you know, not to get near it, and people not even bothering to yeah. try and get near it. Yeah. And that... It it really upset me. Actually, it yeah. shocked me. Yeah.
0: yeah. No, I love that. That's good. Tick. Got that one.
2: <laughs> but it's it, it is. Interesting, isn't it? Then, but because I guess if it's truly new or it has something that yes, will ultimately be responsible for changing the trajectory of theatre, and as a critic, for the most part, I'm not saying you, but no, for the no, most part, no, no, you're not, writing. Me. You know, is almost historically you're yeah. saying well, and often compared. you always
1: said the new is ugly. And yeah, she said her first reaction to reading Waiting for Godot was, my God, this is ugly. And she just went, this is ugly. I, yeah, mean, I yeah. don't like it. It's mm-hmm. ugly. Yeah. And then she made herself like it. Yes. And, you know, she helped get it on in London and yeah. sent it to Peter Hall. And so, you know, it, it went on. But the, the shock is ugliness when yeah, you first... Yeah, yeah. When, you, when something new arrives, you know. Well, yeah.
2: discomfort and that thing where you... I think as an actor you do it as well. You look for moments that you you recognize or you think where does this fit inside me where can exactly. i feel myself saying exactly it? i remember when we were doing to my first meeting with jeremy about um jeremy heron who directed yep. your play moderate soprano yep. and the idea of uh, of playing audrey Mildmay in unbelievable pain at the point in her life where she was about to Pass away and the the pain and the screaming and and not being able to see on stage. I mean, it's not the same thing at all. But sort of as an yeah. analogy, I I remember sitting in his office going, I just don't know how I do that. I just don't know. I don't know if I could do that. And he was like, well, we could find a way. We can talk about it. I said, no, but I, I and it was just that thing of going, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I'm the person to do this for you, but actually end up like all these things often being the, the moment that pe- the audiences then come to say yes. that was like my mum dying. And, yeah. it, and it was so cathartic and extraordinary to see that, to watch it, and that somebody had put that down so articulately on paper. But what I learnt
1: about... When you say, what did I learn about acting? Yeah. What I learnt about acting is that you have another chance every night. yes. And you know, Hopefully. it doesn't it's not killing if no. you get a terrible review if you're an actor. No. Because you go back out and you do better the next night. Yes, yes. So with Via Dolorosa, I always felt, well, I can always do it better tomorrow night. Yeah. And yeah. that that is the actor's salvation. Yes. Whereas the playwright goes home and broods. <laughs> yeah. We're just, you know, trying to carry on with life. Yeah. And, you know, watching the television, but basically brooding about yeah. how badly received our play has been. Yeah. But that is, you know, true of all Uh, that's that's the redemption of acting is doing it again
2: but there is a great thing in artistic endeavor which is sort of glorious in in the exposure i think the the attempt of making art is is so life-affirming and present i remember christopher fry wrote an essay about are, uh, you know, theatre being the truest form of the representation of the moment of life because it's, it has to be performed in the moment, it's reacted to in the moment. Whereas art or music are generally discovered retrospectively after they've been recorded or after the painting is on the wall. Whereas that chemical moment in a theatre is, is, the, is
1: the truest. So, theater. why do you think people specially dislike theatre? Why do you think so many people hate it? Doing it or watching, watching it. it? Do they? Mm. Honestly? Yeah, I think a special venom is directed towards that art form more than to others. Nobody hates sculpture. Nobody no. hates painting. Nobody hates film and television. But they do hate, people hate theatre. Who yeah. do you think
2: is they, though? Who is that?
1: A lot of people who just can't deal with it at all. Who just say, I can't be... I, I, it's also false. It's people shouting... They're doing predetermined moves. There's no spontaneity. It's all old-fashioned. And the days, it belongs to the 19th century and it's all over. Do you never meet people like that? I haven't. Yeah, I meet a lot. Maybe I need Maybe to go out home. I meet a lot like that.
0: I have met them in my life. I think I think there's an interesting thing, and you also touched on this in the Prospect article, that, that theatre stands in a, a, a kind of strange place, particularly at the moment, really. Yeah. That, that, that there's a tendency of viewing it somehow... Indulgent and sort of liked by a very small group of people. That word "elitist" has always been well, sort embattled. of banded, around.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah. it's embattled. It's embattled, right now. Um, Do you yeah. Not feel um, that at all. <sighs> you don't. As a I working? think
2: post-COVID, it's it's yeah. it, the the ground is pretty rocky. Exactly. And and but I think that's true of lots and lots of different parts of society. We don't know our recovery is unsure and there is a lot of people going, no, 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 it's all right, we're all normal, we're back to normal now, but we're not. Confidence mm. has been rocked financially, we haven't recovered. You know, lots of people have changed their lives in a way exactly. that they see no reason exactly. to return to a pre-COVID exactly. state.
1: Yeah. I think the thing and with... theatre, like a radio, hasn't quite tuned itself. It just hasn't quite tuned in to the new situation. I, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I feel, you know... I, I feel it doesn't quite know where to go at the moment. And I can see fear in the eyes of artistic directors. I see them because they're not getting the audience back in the numbers yeah. they would like. And I, I can see I can see That's they're, partly they're money that as well. the habit of theatre going. Yeah. It's money, exactly. You used to be able to go whatever it was, two or three yeah. times a week or twice a week or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, there were people who... Had, but now people go to events. They don't go to yes. repertory. Yes. Yeah. And that you know they don't feel oh I have to catch that
2: I think well it, it, then it's I don't know I don't want to sound naive but I think m- maybe it just needs more time I know that a lot of yeah. theatres won't have that time because it, you just exactly. you can't afford to wait I do
0: think it's fear though I do think that's really right that it, it doesn't quite know what to do and I find going quite a lot as you do I mean you know the the programming has a sense of well we'll try this and we'll try that That's and right. and Maybe we won't take a risk on that, or maybe we'll put that in the studio when we were going to put it on the main stage. And yeah. I, I, I think I mean my only hope is that I, I, you know, conversely to that, I do sort of see quite a lot of young theatre makers who are quite keen to make their mark and make something different. Yeah. And maybe you know, we, we were, you know, when you started in the in in the seventies, you know, with portable and with stuff in a back of a van and going off and making theatre, yeah. that wasn't a great time for theatre. I was starting to watch you know just around then and I felt that um, there was a lot that was just kind of you know, a lot of sort yeah. of ordinary stuff going around and, and 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 very sort of drawing room comedy. And the White Love Vases, which, as we discussed last week, I loved. But, yeah. I mean, that was kind of an aberration. And then suddenly in the 80s there was that kind of great burst in 80s and 90s. So I wonder if that might be the thing that kind of... Yeah, that I think people... theatre
1: always comes and goes. It's an art form, for goodness sake. So like all art forms, it has ups and downs, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think just think we're probably going through a bit of a doubt A bit of right a. Now. But it is. But also, yeah. I think
2: because of the risk, because of the nature of how much money was lost during COVID and the struggle of the arts to climb back, and you know, for the number of actors who've had to have left the profession because they couldn't sustain themselves through yeah. sort of two years out of work for the most part, I think that there is an issue when art end gains. It what? end gains. Yeah, You worry about the end product yeah. as opposed to yeah. the intention of the truth or the need to make it in the first place. Yeah. I think, you know, it's an interesting... Yeah, exactly. I
1: totally agree with and, you. But and that's what Sarah's saying. The young people who are working in the theatre now have things they want to make and say. Yeah. And that
2: will... I think, you know, the, I remember years Oop. and years but ago... But I think
1: there's so much mediation now. And yeah. so many young writers are now... Told to go into workshop, to go into readings, to have their plays rewritten, yeah. for everybody's view about what the play should be about to be, you know. Yeah. Whereas the hot voice of the new, yeah. unmediated by all these people who think they know better, that, that's what the future of the theatre depends on.
2: Yes, and there is lots of it. You know, and I, I think it is happening just no. got
0: to get out it has got to get out yeah
2: and it's just it's just finding the facility for that and and you know as you were saying you know the edinburgh festival wasn't as big this year no. as it has been and that has previously for decades been you know a great sort of breeding ground for performers and writers and comedians and you know maybe it is we, we this recovery is just going to take longer than we want.
0: Yeah and and actually it's very interesting David in terms of what you're saying the play I like the best which was The Last Return which was a play about a ticket queue. Yeah. You cannot imagine it getting through a focus group you cannot imagine yeah. anybody going along exactly. and saying well a play about like a ticket queue yeah. is going to be one of the funniest, cleverest, exactly. darkest things you've ever seen exactly. and I think that it's really Really interesting. So you know, it's that's what you have to hope for: is that the kind of sense of um, mediation, sense of worry, is an anxiety that we're in at the moment, yeah. isn't it?
1: And it's basically it's 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 producers having the courage not to interfere yeah. with the authenticity of a new voice. Yeah, and I think that you know has that they they have become much more intrusive. There's a famous story about um, Christopher Hampton wrote a play called Total Eclipse. I And there was one scene in it, it's about Rambo and Verlaine, and this is 1968, and the director, Bob Kidd, went up to see Bill Gaskell and said, there's one scene that's really not working, and I wonder if I should get Christopher to rewrite. And Bill Gaskell said, no, don't let him rewrite, let him just see it in front of an audience and he'll see it fail, and then he'll write a better scene next time. Yeah. Yeah. It is unimaginable. Yeah, an artistic yeah. director taking, you know, they'd be down with their bloody notes <laughs> within, you know, quick as Jack Flash. they yes, yes. going, oh, I don't think that scene works. You know, and just to trust a writer like that, as Bill did, trust Christopher Hampton. And God knows his trust was rewarded. Yes. Yeah. For goodness sake, he's Christopher Hampton. Yeah. yeah. And he did exactly. learn from that scene not being very good. And, you know, it just, I, I that attitude is so much healthier than the attitude, oh, Oh, this is a play about such and such. So. I know a lot about this. I I think it should be like that. Oh. You know, and that is, unfortunately, theatre for a writer is becoming more like film. It's becoming more that a whole lot of people have got views. Yeah. and you have to listen to their views. Yeah, and that it didn't used to be like that. Yeah.
2: Although I mean I don't I know, probably sound a bit Pollyanna, but I think the, the you well, are Pollyanna. I am Pollyanna, <laughs> <laughs> the actress. The, but um the you know the, the nature as a performer but also as somebody who absolutely loves going those first couple of times when we went back after yeah. covid i just wept yeah because it was so <sighs> I think just healing and, and as an audience, the relief to be, you know, one of the first things that we saw was Amelie, the musical, and at the end, the performers were on stage saying, thank you, thank you for coming, you know, and it was just, and, and there's something, there is something healing, properly medicinal about it, and it, and it does, you know, it isn't, I mean, it is elitist, of course, because of ticket prices and people assuming that they have, they deserve to even go or have a take a view or whatever and that sometimes is a lot of psychological acrobatics for people to go but is that something i would understand would i understand shakespeare understand this political thing yes you would and and it's brilliant but you know at the other end of it you have brilliant theater companies like seen and heard who are literally changing lives with theatre. You know, properly, properly. I, I was talking to a friend who performs with them regularly. And uh, he was chatting to one of the women that set it up. And and she said, oh, no, it was one of the philanthropic people that supports them. And she said, what, what is the the, the, the the best achievement or the most exciting thing? And she turned to a guy and said, it's him. Mm. You know, that he had been uh, literally sort of gathered by seen and heard yeah. at age 910 mm. and and then eventually has become a writer having been to Bristol University and all the rest of it having thought that he that he had nothing yeah. at the beginning of, of it and th- so there are you know theatre at every st- stage I and mean, when we're talking about the highest ranks and the west end and what's going the national and the RSC and whatever but the act of yes. making theatre is a healing ground and so that you hope that ultimately that light will eventually you know, shine bright across everything and that we will, we will rebuild. It's, I keep thinking of this that. Is, and, yeah, go on. You know, just one quick analogy, which is that my first ever job, um, which was an ad in Cape Town many, many centuries ago, um, they had, Nelson Mandela was very recently uh, newly elected prime minister and one of the runners on this job said, we were at the forefront of political theatre. Every, you know, theatre was the even during apartheid. Yeah. Theatre was the only place yes. you could truly, truly yes. object. Yes. Now that he's in power, we're doing Gilbert and Sullivan. Yes, because we are so careful.
1: That's exactly, the and it's case. the
2: same. I feel it's that,
1: exactly the, what I was saying about theatre under the Soviet Union. Yes, you know, it was the rallying point at which people could protest by yeah. by subterfuge, but protest. Yeah. And so plays took on this tremendous urgency—Greek plays, Shakespeare plays, that sort of thing. Yeah. By analogy, so it's you're partly responding to whether there's a need in society to listen to these particular stories. Mm, yeah. And there are times when you feel the need is urgent, and the, you feel at the moment, as you said earlier, comedy is what people crave. Yeah. They they crave. You know, my sister was lives in Nottingham, and you know, she said the day after the Queen's funeral. She went to see Alan Bennett's play, The Clothes They Stand Up In, yeah, you know, yes. in the Nottingham Playhouse. She said it was A, packed, and B, everybody just so happy to be there and to have a good laugh. Yeah. You know? yeah. After a period of mourning for the Queen, yeah. it was just so great to go to the theatre and have a laugh. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that had that feeling. And she said that reminded me of what theatre used to be like a lot, it used to be like that. But, you know, the special circumstances. Added yeah. to, and, of course, it was Adrian Scarborough. So yeah, well, so, no-brainer. So, so, there's nothing more
0: to say. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you will, you know, obviously go on responding to Changing Times and, you know, perhaps we'll have another conversation soon. Um, but I think that's quite a good moment with a laugh to end yeah, this good. on. Thank you well so done. much, David, Not for coming thank to, thank it to Brilliant. It brilliant. And um, so it's goodbye from me, Sarah Crompton, the critic. And goodbye from me, Nancy Carroll, the actress.